1: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST. When two newlyweds are found dead in their home... For no apparent reason, brutally shot in
2: the head and left on the floor. Folks
1: in small-town Graham, Washington, don't know what to think. Why
2: is this happening out here, and how scared
1: do I need to be? Detectives fear the senseless crime is just the beginning of a deadly rampage. Can they or will they do it again? Until they find
3: out the dead couple kept their enemies close. It definitely
1: was uh, an eye-opener, and it was a surprise. And soon, a killer with a shocking past is found hiding in plain view.
4: Probably one of the scariest people I've dealt with in my career.
1: How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Nestled in the vast landscapes of the Pacific Northwest, lies the little town of Graham, Washington. Only a stone's throw from the big city of Seattle, this place is anything but. Known for its wide open spaces, the rural hamlet showcases nature at its best.
2: We've got mountains here, we've got the Puget Sound here, oceans not far away, there's some beautiful rivers run through not too far away. So it's picturesque.
1: It's not just the natural beauty that draws people to the area. There's a quality of life here that money just can't buy.
2: It's a little bit more open, maybe a little bit uh, slower pace of life. Plenty of room for people to have their own space away from the city. Nice lifestyle. And it's just
1: this way of life that newlyweds, 30-year-old Brian and 28-year-old Bev Mock crave. After building their dream house on five acres of land in Graham, these two seem to have it all.
5: And they had lots of trees in the back. They had a beautiful view of mariner. They got everything they wanted, the way they wanted in that home.
1: But Bev's mom, Karen Slater, knows it's not hard to make these two lovebirds happy. Since tying the knot on a tropical island just a year ago, Brian and Bev are on cloud nine.
5: Oh, their dreams all came true. They were like the perfect match. They made each other very happy. They live life to the fullest, fuller than most people ever get to. The all-American
1: couple. Brian
5: is an HVAC technician,
1: and Bev works at a local car dealership. With good jobs, a beautiful home, and the love of a lifetime, Brian and Bev look forward to a bright future together. But they won't get to live happily ever after. On a Saturday morning in November of 2007, their Cascadian fairy tale takes a grim turn. As part of the Pierce County Mountain Patrol, Deputy James Wilson sees everything from bickering neighbors to heartless homicides. But after nine years on the job, this gentle giant has learned how to cope with the tough stuff. It's like a switch. You can just turn it on and off. Certain calls, you know, they're going to make it harder. On the morning of Saturday, November 17th, he gets word about some trouble at the Mox place. And Officer Wilson prays this isn't one of those heartbreaking calls.
3: It was dispatched as a possible injured person. The neighbor had looked through the
1: window and seen a disturbing scene. Always on the ready, Deputy Wilson is at the house in minutes. And the neighbor who made the call, Nate Bullman, is waiting for him at the end of the driveway. Nate says he was worried about Brian when he didn't show up to go hunting with him earlier that morning. So when Nate got back from his trip, he stopped by the Mawks place to see if everything was all right. And from the looks of things, it was anything but. He had said
3: that he had seen the door panel was kicked in. Saw what appeared to be two bodies laying inside with blood all
1: over. Nate tells Officer Wilson, "That's when he went home to call 911 and grab the spare key." Using Nate's key to open the deadbolted door, they find themselves staring at a terrifying scene.
3: The hair on the back of your neck stands up. Uh, in this instance, I have no hair, but it was up.
1: it was standing up. A trail of blood, covered up with blankets, leads from the front door to the living room. And at the end of the gruesome path lies his worst nightmare. Not one, but two dead bodies. They were on top of each other, with a blanket over top, kind of covering them up. At first glance, Officer Wilson and Nate Bullman are blown away by the shocking scene. You could see that there was multiple gunshot wounds to the head. I mean, both victims. It was obvious that they were deceased. He can't say for sure. But Wilson guesses it's Brian and Bev Mock. As the experienced patrolman makes his way outside to lock down the scene, he notices Nate Bullman has left without a trace. Obviously, this was suspicious. He was the first one there, so I knew the detectives would want to talk to him. But he can't go after the vanishing neighbor. Wilson's got to stay put and stand guard until the top dogs arrive. Detective Sergeant Ben Benson's title isn't the only thing impressive about this guy. In nearly three decades with the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, he's worked more cases than the Mount St. Helens search and rescue team. But all the crimes in the Pacific Northwest
4: couldn't prepare him for the double homicide in Graham. There was just some real unusual things to this crime scene that you don't see every day. At the scene,
1: Detective Benson tries to take it all in he's immediately struck by the strange placement of the bodies.
4: Brian was laying face down, and uh, Beverly was draped across the upper portion of his body, so they sort of made a T the way that they were laying. It's not clear how the
1: bodies ended up this way. But for now... Benson's even more baffled by something else.
4: Brian was clothed. He had on a pair of jeans and a T-shirt. And then Beverly was nude. She didn't have any clothing on.
1: A female victim without any clothes on is usually a clear-cut case of rape. But cops aren't so sure this time around.
4: Could have indicated that there was a sexual assault, but the fact that she's laying there with her husband, who is clothed, the possibilities were endless as far as how they ended up like that.
1: And once they get a chance to take a closer look around, detectives realize something else. While the killer is hardly a neatnik, he spent quite a bit of time trying to tidy up the scene, starting with the bloody trail from the door.
4: He had covered the blood, and then I think just about every light switch in the house had blood smears on it. We're obviously wiping down things to get rid of fingerprints. It's a crude attempt at a cleanup that falls short.
1: When police remove the blankets from the bloody trail, they uncover the impression of a shoe. The clue is priceless. But what they find next is as good as money in the bank. There's a bloody fingerprint on the bedroom door.
4: That was just a huge, huge piece of evidence for us at that point. It was a really good print that was left in blood
1: Detective Benson knows, as far as crime scenes go, he's got a lot to work with. But the reason behind the murder is a mystery. With big-ticket items like a flat-screen TV in plain sight, police are pretty sure of one thing.
4: To uh, assume that robbery was a motive at that point in time was, was not really on the front burner.
1: Even without a motive, the case is coming together almost as quickly as word of the brutal killings spreads around town. And before police have a chance to break the news to Bev's mom, Karen, she hears about it through the grapevine, 30 minutes away in her hometown of Milton. I just thought it was a hoax. And I thought, who could be so cruel to play this hoax? As reality sets in for the grieving mother, police start searching for a killer and they don't have to go far. The mock's neighbor, Nate Bullman, is a likely first stop. Especially since his quick exit from the crime scene is questionable at best.
4: People will report their their own crimes that they've committed and uh, and at that point in time, everybody's a suspect.
1: Nate Bullman is looking like a pretty good one. This hunter had a clean shot at neighbors Brian and Bev. Now police need to find out. Did he take it? Is Nate just a nosy neighbor or a calculating cold-blooded killer?
5: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.
6: Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: School board meetings and county fairs are usually the big news in a small town like Graham, Washington but just a few hours after Brian and Bev Mock's gruesome crime scene is discovered. The double homicide is all anyone around these parts wants to talk about.
2: A story doesn't get bigger in a local community than having a young, vibrant couple killed in their home.
1: As an anchor for the local Comil 4 news channel, Molly Shen is used to giving her audience the scoop. But when it comes to the Mock's murders, her stories got more holes than one of Kurt Cobain's old flannels.
2: The police were telling us, we don't know who did it, and we don't have a description to give you. So that makes it a lot tougher because people are asking us for that information, and we don't have it to pass along.
1: Police don't have a suspect solid enough to share with the media. But they are looking awfully hard at one person in particular, Nate Bullman, the neighbor who discovered the bodies and then took off.
4: We're paying attention to how people are acting and how they're behaving. Nate's disappearing act speaks
1: louder than words. And sure enough, when detectives ask what he was up to that morning, Nate's story feels softer than a misty
4: autumn rain. He was hunting by himself, so, so yeah, that's not really an alibi as to where you're at and what you're doing.
1: Sensing detectives are growing weary of him. Nate swears he would never hurt Brian and Bev.
4: They were friends. They socialized uh, every once in a while. On Friday nights, a lot of times, would get together and have a card game.
1: Sounds like they were the best of neighbors. And when police see that Nate's never been in trouble with the law, they doubt he's their
4: guy. Snake Bowman seemed like he was a a credible person. He was acting appropriately. He was upset about what he'd seen and what he had found. Detective Benson doesn't know for sure, but
1: he's not banking on Bullman to be the killer. Faced with a blank suspect list, the pressure is on, that's for sure. Good thing Detective Benson doesn't have to go it alone. With a case this big, he's gonna get a few more hands on deck. Jason Tate just made Detective a few months back, but after years of working towards the title, he's got a good idea of
3: what's expected from him. I don't... Think it's so much about proving yourself,
1: but making sure you do a good job. But keeping a level head when you're a homicide detective is easier said than done. And the heartbreaking details of Brian and Bev's case are almost too much for this newbie to handle. They're young
3: and active and probably enjoyed being together and enjoyed life. And so I think that part is more difficult, just to see how it's just taken
1: away. It's a bitter pill to swallow for the freshman homicide detective, but it only deepens his desire to catch the killer. And he's not the only one. Eager to help, Bev's mom, Karen Slater, is dead set on bringing her daughter's killer to justice.
5: All I could think about was catching whoever
1: killed them. Karen and her daughter were as close as apple pie and ice cream. And the desperate mother has some crucial information about a potential
5: suspect. I wanted the police to check out this guy that Bev had told me had stolen her cell phone and a gun from the house.
1: Roland Jeffries boosted the three fifty-seven Magnum and the phone a few weeks back during a party at Brian and Bev's place. And Bev told her mom that his sticky fingers weren't the only issue they had with Jeffries that night. The troublemaker was belligerent and put up a fight when Brian asked him to leave.
5: Bev said she was afraid of him. My first instinct, he was the murderer.
1: Brian and Bev never reported the item stolen because Roland was the cousin of a good friend. Now cops wonder if the Mock's loyalty cost this trusting pair their lives.
4: I mean, that was the person that we wanted to find at that point and, and find out what his story was.
1: And when detectives look into Roland's background, his checkered past runs as long as Interstate 5.
4: Had a lot of criminal history to the point of being arrested. Charges such as possession of a stolen vehicle,
1: forgery, and violating a restraining order sit at the top of the list. His priors, along with Karen's claims, make police wonder if this career criminal recently promoted himself to killer.
4: He's been identified as, uh, as the person that Beverly was afraid of and that had been in their homes and that they'd had problems with him. So tracking down this rabble-rouser becomes Detective
1: Tate's first assignment. And he starts at the most recent dwelling on Roland's rap sheet. The first address didn't exist, or we
3: just couldn't find it, whether or not got typed in incorrectly. Or maybe he provided an
1: address that didn't exist. But Detective Tate knows better than to give up so he heads to the next address in Roland's file. Just 30 minutes from the Mox house in nearby Roy, it turns out to be Roland's mother's house. And at
3: that residence, we made contact with family member, but Roland wasn't staying
1: there or hadn't been there. The detective pleads with Roland's mom to find her son, but he's not holding his breath. You just keep trying to make contact, see if you can actually track him down. But when Detective Tate gets word the M.E. has the autopsy results, he races back to the station. The findings confirm what police already know and provide a few details that they didn't.
4: Brian was shot one time in the uh, right side of his head. Uh, that's the first shot that he, that he sustained. And then he was shot twice in the back of his head to execute him. And make sure he was dead. It was a brutal
1: shooting and unfortunately Bev suffered a similar fate.
4: He shot her twice in the back of the head and then one more um, right between her eyes to execute her and make sure she was dead.
1: A negative rape kit on Bev who was found naked at the scene
4: confirms the detective's theory that rape wasn't a motive. There was no sign that they, that she was sexually assaulted during this incident. Bullets
1: recovered from the bodies don't give cops anything to work with either.
4: It was a small caliber gun, more more than likely a 22 caliber handgun. 22 caliber bullets um, are such that they don't give you ballistics off of them.
1: Detectives are disappointed. But it turns out to be what's missing from the bodies that gives them their biggest clue yet. With no defensive wounds on Brian, police believe he was caught off guard by the killer.
4: That's where we came up with the theory that the person that did this probably came to the front door, and we believe that Brian opened the door and let him in. Any detective worth his salt knows what that means. It looked like he probably knew the person that did this is what we felt.
1: The revelation brings cops one step closer to the killer, but another notch away from cracking the code of the crime scene. While there are no signs of a struggle between Brian and his attacker, the broken door panel indicates a break-in. The
4: initial assumptions that was made uh, was that this was possibly forced open to gain entry into the house.
1: Now that detectives know different, they have to ask if Brian opened the door to his killer, why is it broken in? But this minor detail sits among a mountain of other major clues, so detectives put it aside for now and follow the evidence to their leading suspect, Roland Jeffries. Cops have good reason to suspect
4: Roland of taking out the mocks. They had had problems with this person sometime in the recent past, and this person had gone from the house.
1: Looks like the mocks may have landed themselves a spot at the top of a dangerous criminal's hit list. Police think Roland is their guy, and they're all set and ready to smoke him like a salmon steak on a cedar plank. But they're going to have to find him first. The day Brian and Bev Mock are found brutally murdered in their home, the rural community of Graham, Washington is abuzz with the news. And chatter down at the local coffee shop is chock full of questions about what's brewing in this once peaceful place.
2: Is there a description of the suspect? Is there a random person out there who is this extremely violent? Do we need to stay inside our home?
1: While the good people of Graham fear for their safety, Detective Ben Benson and his crew do everything they can to ensure it. And they've got a solid suspect in Roland Jeffries, the belligerent thief from Brian and Bev's party a few weeks back.
4: We uh, made an effort to locate him right off the bat because wanted to talk to him.
1: But Roland seems to have vanished into thin air. And his disappearing act has made it impossible for Detective Tate and the boys to get the real deal on this shady character. What's this person's story? Is he he still in the area? just don't know. The path to Roland Jeffries is one frustrating dead end after another. So police decide to take a different route on their hunt for a killer. They hit the pavement in Brian and Bev's rural neighborhood and come across their best lead yet. A couple who claims to have witnessed something suspicious that fateful morning.
4: Jennifer and Daniel Tavares lived on the same road that Brian and Beverly lived on. And Daniel said that he had heard some gunshots in the area that morning. But he and his wife just assumed it was a trigger-happy huntsman. It's not uncommon to hear gunshots out there. 7 o'clock in the morning, they said that they didn't think anything all that out of the ordinary.
1: And when police asked the Tavareses if they happened to see anything out of the ordinary, it just so happens they did. Jennifer and
3: Daniel relayed that they'd seen uh, a vehicle basically in uh, Brian Bailey's driveway. And this male that had exited the house got into the vehicle and then drove away.
1: Daniel tells detectives he didn't recognize the man. But he does remember what he looks like. The visitor was white, hadn't shaved in a few days, and had long hair pulled back into a ponytail.
4: And he could see that there was a second subject in the truck, but couldn't tell how long or short their hair was or anything else. He believes it was also a white male, but can't say for sure. However,
1: he does know what kind of car they were driving.
4: It was this red pickup truck. He said it had a loud exhaust on it.
1: Jennifer and Daniel say they didn't catch the license plate number, make or
4: model of the truck. Being when he was looking, it was 7 o'clock in the morning, and at that time of year, it's still fairly dark outside.
1: Detectives leave Daniel and his bride in peace, eager to get to work on finding the mystery men in the red truck.
3: Well, the first thing is, okay, who would they know if anybody that owns a red pickup
1: truck? But finding the two suspects won't be easy. There are more red pickup trucks in Pierce County than there are cow pies in its plentiful pasture lands. And to make matters worse, no one in the mock's inner circle knows anything about a red truck. Including Bev's mom and bosom buddy, Karen Slater.
5: I couldn't think of anybody, so they ended up calling Bev's friends.
1: And police come up empty with Brian and Bev's pals, too. Detectives refuse to let this lead dry up. So they wonder if maybe, just maybe, it's connected to their other suspect, Roland Jeffries. Could one of the guys seen leaving the mocks that morning also be the elusive troublemaker from Brian and Bev's party? But a quick look at Roland's mugshot tells police this young man with a buzz cut is a far cry from the suspect identified by Daniel
4: Tavares. The subject that he saw coming out of the house was older, and, uh, and didn't match Roland Jeffries.
1: Police quickly confirm that Roland doesn't own a red truck either. But that doesn't rule him out completely. Perhaps Roland enlisted the help of the man with the ponytail to do his dirty work. And it's possible he was the passenger that eyewitness Daniel Tavares couldn't make out. His involvement at that time, you
3: don't know. You're still working to you know connect the dots. Ready for
1: some answers, Detective Tate makes a beeline for the final address on Roland's record, the one he had to skip when the autopsy came back earlier that day. The house happens to be in a deeply wooded area, about 10 miles from the Malk's place, or at least it used to be.
3: The house that was, well, burned down. Uh, There wasn't much left, anything left. There's stuff all over the place. It's just, you got boards and tires
1: and debris any hope of finding Roland Jeffries has literally gone up in smoke. For starters, Detective Tate has no idea why the house is burnt to the ground. Out of the house uh, could destroy an accidental fire. What's this person's story? Maybe the fire was merely an accident, and Roland's just a hard guy to pin down. But there's also a chance he torched the place on purpose was this would-be pyro trying to burn evidence of murder. The morning after Brian and Bev Mock are murdered, police in Graham, Washington, are still on the hunt for a cold-blooded killer. And reporter Molly Shen can tell that people around town are still spooked by the brutal homicide on their home turf.
2: People were very worried about what was going on, that they didn't know who it was. It was a senseless crime, a tragedy, and one that really shook that community.
1: Folks fear a killer is walking amongst them, and there's little detective Ben Benson can do about it. Even though he's locked and loaded on a surefire suspect, the sharpshooter has no idea where to aim. Roland Jeffries, who butted heads with Brian and stole a gun during a recent party at the
4: Mox's place, Has been MIA since the murders. We were were looking for him, but we weren't weren't able to find him right away.
1: And when one of his addresses is found burnt to a crisp, police wonder if Roland is trying to destroy any chance of tracking him down. But just when Detective Tate thinks Roland is gone for good, the phone rings. And it's none other than their number one suspect calling to clear his name.
3: I was quite surprised, but he was contacted by the family member and provided the phone number for the investigators.
1: But the excitement of making contact with their missing suspect wears off fast when Roland tells police he isn't on the run. He's just been staying with a friend 10 miles away in Puyallup. The former felon swears he's innocent, and he can prove it. He was with friends the night of the murder, who can all back up his story.
4: So Roland Jeffries was being cooperative with our investigation, and he had an alibi uh, that panned out for the time of the murders.
1: Not only that, but the bullets found at the crime scene are not a match to the gun he stole from Brian and Bev. Detectives cross Roland off their suspect list. And just like that, the investigation is back at square one. After years of catching killers... Detective Ben Benson knows it's time to get another angle on the case. And since he doubles as a pilot for the Sheriff's Department, it's a bird's-eye view that he's after.
4: It's just a beautiful area, and it's, and it's nice to be able to get up and get away. It makes my, my job more fun. But flying the friendly skies is more business than pleasure when he's trying
1: to solve a double murder.
4: Like when we have a, a homicide or, or a crime scene like this one, We'll take the plane up and take aerial pictures of the area.
1: As Benson hovers high over the Mox house, he's reminded just how far it is from the trailer of the folks who believe they saw Brian and Bev's killer. And he starts to wonder how Daniel and Jennifer Tavares were able to give such a precise description of the men in the red truck from so far away.
4: That sort of raised my eyebrows. Initially, I didn't believe that he could have seen the detail that he gave in that interview.
1: Eager to see if he's onto something, Benson gets back on solid ground and heads straight to the Tavares' trailer with Detective Jason Tate in tow. Daniel and Jennifer are pleasantly surprised to see police and welcome them inside. As
3: we talked, Daniel was forthcoming with information. And he was talkative, almost to the point where he's almost overly cooperative. Police just don't know what
1: to make of this eager beaver.
4: Either he's telling us the truth and he saw uh, somebody and we've got a description, or he's making that up and he's lying about that.
1: But detectives don't want Daniel and Jennifer to know they're under the microscope. So they politely ask which window the two were looking out of. And when police get a glance at the view, they know something's just
3: not right. Looking back at Brian and Beverly's house, the distance just raises a red flag.
1: It's not just the stretch of land that makes detectives leery of Daniel and Jennifer's
4: eagle-eyed account. There is something standing in the way. You've also got this obstruction that's, that's partially blocking your view as well. Would have been nearly impossible for Daniel to see what he said he saw from his vantage point. If Daniel is telling tall tales,
1: detectives want to know why. Is it possible his story is just an elaborate cover-up for the truth?
3: Okay, that maybe this person has a little more knowledge
1: um, than what they're initially giving. Without any clear evidence or an obvious motive, detectives' theory is just that. So police thank the two for their time and head back to the station to see if they can't find anything concrete on the mock's neighbors. And it doesn't take long before they're able to dig up some serious dirt on Daniel. It seems the helpful neighbor is
4: also a wanted man. We found that he had a warrant out of Massachusetts for violating his parole. Daniel's prison stay certainly gets their attention.
1: But detectives are sitting on the edge of their seat when they learn why he did hard
4: time. Daniel Tavares um, had been in prisons in Massachusetts for manslaughter, uh, which means he had killed somebody in the past.
1: Police can't believe their eyes. It turns out Daniel was only released from prison just a few months earlier, after serving 16 years for manslaughter. Uh, It definitely was uh, an eye-opener, and it was a surprise. Unfortunately... That's all the information they can get about Daniel's conviction for now.
4: We didn't have access to police records back in Massachusetts that quick on a Sunday afternoon. It's going to be a day
1: or two before detectives can get more information on Daniel's criminal past. But they've got enough to work with for now.
4: Well, that led to our, the next phase of our investigation. And now Daniel Tavares has just become a real person of interest
1: in this situation. Ready to nail Daniel for Brian and Bev's murder, detectives start by trying to place him at the crime scene with the most damning evidence they have.
4: The beautiful thing we had going for us in this case was the bloody fingerprint from the crime scene. And thanks to Daniel's past indiscretions, his prints are available for the taking. They're on file with the FBI, so we were able to get them from the FBI fingerprint database.
1: With the evidence against Daniel collecting like rainfall in Graham, detectives are positive the prints will line up. But instead, the case hits a
3: dry patch. And when they check the print that was found at the scene um, against prints for Daniel matched to any
1: fingers. The disappointing results hit detectives harder than a grim grunge riff. After all, Daniel Tavares seemed like a shoe-in for the Mox murders.
4: Based on how he was acting and based on his past criminal history, I believed he was our murderer at that point in time. But when the evidence says otherwise, detectives are at a loss. But just when it seems
1: all hope is lost, Benson gets a call from the forensics lab. And a recent revelation about a piece of evidence turns out to be the key that unlocks the truth behind this ruthless crime. Just one day after the shooting deaths of Brian and Bev Mock, detectives get some shocking news that blows the case wide open. Turns out, a crucial piece of evidence found at the murder scene was not at all what it seemed to be.
4: What we believed to be a fingerprint that was left in blood on a uh, door frame it was, in fact, not a fingerprint. An expert
1: is convinced it's actually part of a palm print. The
4: news is music to Detective Ben Benson's ears. When it was determined that this fingerprint was in fact a palm print, I was thrilled to death. Detectives are sure the groundbreaking discovery is going to be the final
1: piece to this puzzling case. Red-hot suspect Daniel Tavares was initially put on the back burner based on the elusive fingerprint. But now it looks like it's time to move him back on the board. So detectives concoct a plan to get the evidence they need.
4: I explained to them that while processing the crime scene, we're finding all kinds of fingerprints in the home and that I wanted to get their fingerprints so we could eliminate the fingerprints that weren't important to us.
1: The couple buys the cops cover story, hook, line, and sinker. When detectives show up at their door, the Tavares' welcome them inside. And the two are none the wiser when the specialist inks their hands.
4: He was more than cooperative and happy to do so, and he thought that we were uh, buying his story.
1: Now, detectives just need to get him down to the station, so they tell another white lie. Police claim they want to get a composite sketch
4: of the men Daniel and Jennifer saw leaving the Mocks' house. He said, sure, he would absolutely do that. He'd be more than happy to help. So Jennifer and
1: Daniel hitch a ride with detectives down to the station while the lab gets to work on comparing the prints. But it turns out that won't be the only thing the lab has to analyze today. On his way into the station, Daniel leaves a priceless clue just steps outside the PD.
4: Daniel walked through some water in the parking lot and and left foot impressions of what his shoe tread was.
1: And rookie Jason Tate makes his first big impression as a detective when he recognizes the pattern of the shoe from one he saw the other day. He's certain he's seen it before. It sure looks like the bloody footprint he saw in Brian and Bev's entryway. The whole
3: tread pattern was almost like a zigzag or a little bit of a a
1: wavy uh, pattern, but very, very distinguishable. Looks like detectives might have the goods on Daniel, but until they get the lab results, they won't know for sure. Good thing the Tavares's still seem clueless, even when cops request to speak with them separately. And once Benson's got Daniel in the hot seat, he starts warming him up and asks about his sordid
4: past. And I said that I'd seen on his criminal history that he had uh, done time in prison for manslaughter.
1: The former felon doesn't seem concerned that cops have been looking into him. Instead, he fesses right up and tells Detective Benson that he did, in fact,
4: kill someone his very own mother. I said, you killed your mother? I was shocked. He stabbed his mother multiple times until she was dead. It turns out the appalling crime didn't keep Daniel locked up for good. Because he was found to have some mental issues, um, he was convicted of manslaughter instead of murder. Daniel claims his mother had it coming. Cops aren't
1: exactly sure what led to the killing, but they do know one thing. If Daniel can take out his own mother, surely he wouldn't think twice about killing his neighbors. And when his prints come back a perfect match to the ones at the crime scene, Benson knows he's got his guy.
4: I was glad because then I, I was convinced that we had our murderer and he's off the street.
1: Confronted with the evidence, Daniel Tavares grudgingly confesses to shooting Brian and Bev Mock to death. But he doesn't provide much of a reason.
4: He said that he was down at their house and Brian called him a punk. And he said, I've been to prison for almost 20 years. Nobody calls me a punk. So I shot him in Beverly. Daniel's matter-of-fact delivery makes for a chilling confession. And he just sat back in his chair and smiled. And it was just like he knew... He was going back to prison for the rest of his life.
1: And he's right. On February 15, 2008, just three months after the murders, Daniel Tavares pleads guilty to first-degree homicide and is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And even though Daniel and Jennifer both swear she didn't play any part in the crime, Daniel's wife gets a year behind bars for rendering criminal assistance.
4: You know, I'm reluctant to use the word satisfied. I guess I'm glad Daniel's where he is and and that's where he needs to be.
1: For Bev's mom, Karen Slater, the conviction is bittersweet. While it doesn't bring her daughter back, it does provide some solace.
5: It gives me a lot of satisfaction knowing he's never gonna be able to hurt anyone else and knowing that he is suffering.
1: Daniel has every day of the rest of his life to think about what he did to Brian and Bev Mock on the morning of November 17th, 2007. And based on his confession and a little more digging, detectives now know exactly what that was.
4: We found a person that he'd been with that night and and, uh, he told us that Daniel had been doing meth all night long.
1: When his money runs out in the early morning hours, Daniel stops by his neighbor's place to
4: borrow a few bucks. He went down there at 7 o'clock in the morning and knocked on Brian and Beverly's door. Sound asleep when Daniel arrives, Brian hastily
1: throws on some clothes and lets in his early morning visitor.
4: He knows Daniel, so he turned around and walked into the living room. Put off by the
1: premature wake-up call, Brian gives Daniel a piece of his mind. And that's all it takes for this whacked-out, homicidal maniac to snap.
4: Brian was shot one time in the right side of his head and then twice in the back of his head. Bev jumps out of bed,
1: fully nude, straight into the path of Tavares. Daniel catches
3: her at the front door, and she was shot three times.
1: On his way out, Daniel leaves a bloody print before he knocks out a panel of the front door, reaches in, and locks the deadbolt. Detectives don't know if it's a last-minute trick to throw cops off track or the deranged logic of a drugged-up killer. Either way, it's just another senseless stunt by the savage murderer.
4: Daniel Tavares committed these murders because he enjoys killing people. He's a very scary, dangerous person.
1: Thanks to the hard work of the Pierce County Sheriff's Department, this heartless killer is off the streets for good. And Como anchor Molly Shen is relieved to report the news.
2: Once he was in custody, people didn't feel scared anymore, but as they learned about him, they felt outraged.
1: Eventually, the good people of Graham make peace with the deadly ordeal. But they will never forget the time when a killer came calling on their peaceful little town.
2: This is a case that'll always stand out as being such a needless tragedy. People like the Mocks, this young, loving couple, they shouldn't have ever been in harm's way.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?